Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoy today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Today, I'm joined by Dr. K. Dr. K, you're in Baltimore. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Baltimore is a beautiful place today and every day, but the weather is amazing today. Fantastic. Nice fall vibes uh, matching with the uh, the election vibes. We'll get into that in a moment. But before we kick off, I'd love for uh, our audience to get to know you a little bit better. I know you're, you're born in Baltimore. And one of the things that I want to talk about is how some of your travels have helped shape you both personally and professionally. So, you know, why don't we kind of go to the beginning and just uh, give me a little bit of insight to your early childhood and, um, you know, kind of what your parents instilled in you as you, you kind of uh, started to experience and explore the world. So I was actually born in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And okay. I grew up between South Carolina, I mean, the Jim Crow, right on the end of the Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a Jim Crow baby or even a, a Jim Crow tip baby, but my parents grew up in Jim Crow, South Carolina, and that framed how they saw the world. And I grew up between Washington, D.C., Chocolate City, under the, um, the reign of Mayor Marion Barry, our mayor forever, and South <laughs> Carolina. So I would spend every summer down south, and I would spend my winters uh, in the upper south, is what we call D.C., Right. Now, was there a big contrast, you know, between D.C. and uh, and South Carolina growing up? Oh, yes. The, uh, this, the contrast is when you think about what does it mean to to deal with blatant racism head on, to deal with neighbors who have Confederate flags, to go into stores that still have signs up, even though they, at that point they were framed signs for colored and for whites only, just to remind you of, of where they stood on these issues and where their parents stood on these issues. And to be in Chocolate City, I think that DC's moniker in terms of how black people ran that city, how they reigned in that city, how you had black people on all levels of politics in that city from the mayor on down, that is in stark contrast to a place that just took down the Confederate flag after the shooting and killing in the church. So even today, there's a, a stark contrast between South Carolina, which of course is a place that just sent Lindsey Graham back to Washington, DC, and a place mm -hmm. under the control of Miro Bowser, who painted Black Lives Matter on the street in front of where President Trump was, was living, was living past tense, because we're standing right. in that power. Yeah. And so what was the transition to uh, to Baltimore? Um, I, I know it's not too far. I lived in, in D.C. for a little bit. What was the transition to to Baltimore, kind of the impetus and, and the timing? Oh, so the, you're talking about years between the two. I mean, I once I grew up and went to college at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, graduate school in Indiana at the University of Notre Dame, I moved to New York in the 90s to be a filmmaker and a television producer. And I was mm -hmm. in New York up until I think... 1999, 2000, I got married and my husband was really called to come to Bal to launch a feeding ministry for people who are temporarily experiencing homelessness. So we've been down here with our two sons since 2000. Great. Okay. All right. And I love the journey of all of that. 
I, I want to go back to some of your early travels, uh, kind of childhood and, and as a young adult, you know, taking trips, as I understand it, you know, from Canada to Paris, South Africa, East Africa. Tell me why that was important for, for you early on and uh, maybe share one or two stories from uh, what you took from those experiences. Okay. Uh, I'm laughing as I'm sitting here listening because when you say it, it sounds like it happened one thing after the other, but in, in no way mm-hmm. did that happen. I traveled to Canada when I was 13. My parents sent me out of the country early on uh, to have experiences with, uh, with other cultures. I was in Paris, I mean, what, 10 years ago? I went to the Cannes Film Festival with my mom when I was in film school. I went to, I lived in Kenya when I was in college doing study abroad and I did Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania where I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. During the summer when I was upset, I went to South Africa. This was in the mid nineties. So my travels have been over a lifetime. Um, so it's not so, it's not so collapsed. So the travel right. is important because I believe in seeing the world I've always wanted to say, see the, the Vatican. I wanted to, to go to the temples and the churches there. So that's why I went to Italy to follow the last steps of Loyola Ignatius, because I teach at Ignatian University, um, Loyola University. So all the travels that I have done, if I am not speaking somewhere or visiting, it has been for both personal enrichment, professional growth and development, but also to make sure that I I never forget that America is a small part of this larger planet. Sometimes I think when you stay in America, you begin to believe that America is the center of earth and we are not. And it's important to be able to see your own country through the long lens of, of where you stand in other places. So to look at American news while I was in Paris or to look at American news when I was visiting Ghana it just gave me a different perspective on how the world sees us versus how we see ourselves. Right. Now, now give me some insight into that, you know, as you would look at, you know, whether it was just kind of mediocre, you know, day in the life coverage or some, you know, historic event. What's something you noticed either in the tone or the approach in how other countries would cover an American story? Um, I've noticed that it has changed over the years. I think we have to be clear about the fact that the way the world covered the news when I was 13, before social media, before uh, the world became a smaller place, it's very different than how it covers it now. I, I look at what Dr. King said when he once talked about how the world had gotten so small. I think he said it was like an apartment building is what he said is in <laughs> terms of, of how small the world had become and how close countries were. I would argue now with social media that the world is more akin to one big, one big apartment, that we're all in just different rooms in the same apartment. So the world is covering news differently. I think that with the election of Barack Obama and the impact of that, I saw that the world was not just rejoicing with us, but, but also deeply concerned that it had taken so long to have that historic moment, but it took as long as it did to have a black man become president of the United States because here in America, we export culture and we tend not to import as much politics and cultural understanding from other countries as they do from us. So you could, I could go to South Africa and talk about Oprah or, or Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. You know, I could go right. to Paris and we could talk about Whitney Houston. I don't know, uh, Will Smith. I'm just throwing names out here. Sure, sure. And we, we can also talk about our president. We could talk about Bush. We could talk about Clinton. And we could talk about- Why do you think that is? Why do you think the culture exports so well? 
Um, I think the culture exports so well because if you look at the the definition of culture, it's music, it's it's politics, it's clothing that America dominates, particularly within the African American community, the full range and scope of the ways in which our entertainers and our athletes and our actors have just dominated the planet cannot be understated. And definitely you add to that this idea of America being the home of the free and the land of the brave. We, we can debate that, but that's an ideology that's been exported. And for a lot of people around the world that I have come in contact with, so part of this is anecdotal, but also part of it is historical research, there's a sense that in America, you really can find your place and you can make your dreams come true. I, even though as a, an African-American, I tend to dispute that, but I also know that when people talk about wanting to come to America, it's because they want to live their dreams. They want to, to be able to bring money to their family. They understand that in this country that even though we experience poverty in America, in no way do we experience the type of poverty that I have seen in other countries right. that I think can't be discounted. So with that and with the impact of that, the problem is on the other hand, as we are exp exporting culture, as people are learning English along with whatever uh, their native languages are, we don't do that very well here. We, we don't learn other languages. So it's by choice when you're in high school or college. Meet people around the world who could tell us exactly what's happening with Donald Trump. And we probably can't even name the leaders of other countries, right? We can talk about right, right. Beyonce and we'll have no idea who the big singers are from I mean, Nigeria or from, from India. I think that there's something there to be said about the ways in which we as Americans are not as adept in terms of what's happening in other countries and the ways in which they are adept in what's happening in ours. Right. And I mean, it's it's obvious structurally how that's happening on, on a more systemic basis. What do you think is behind the motivation for us as more individuals to not prioritize that? Um, I would argue that we have a lot of priorities in this country. We're overwhelmed here. I mean, depending upon what community you're from, and I can't at all speak to what other communities go through, but I know within the Black communities, we're overwhelmed. We have issues that are happening in our schools. We have issues that are happening in our community. Even at this time, we're dealing with Black Lives Matter meets Black COVID stories. And it's hard to say, well, mm -hmm. we also need to do this. Our schools are challenged. The ways in which we are miseducating, to use Carter G. Woodson's words, our children I would like us to become more adept. I would like our children to be bilingual. I also know that we have some real issues in this country in which the root of it is systemic racism and white supremacy that we have to dismantle. And until that's done, we can say that we want our children to become adept with what's happening around the world. We can also say that we also wanna have you know, running clean water and, and air conditioning and heat in our inner city schools. We have some basic needs that have to be met. Unfortunately, I would like it to be an and both situation, but I think it's an either or because it's- Right, I mean, I agree like with that. Uh, I, I wanna challenge you on, on, on a couple things though. First, so do you feel that in some of these other places you've spent time outside of the US that people just aren't dealing with as much? So they have the both time and mental, you know, kind of capacity to uh, kind of pay attention to, to other countries? No, I think it's taught more in the schools than we do it here. I would argue that if you go- Okay, into so, so, so the schools, schools and other schools, folks have prioritized that. 
Oh yeah, I mean, I, I've gone in. Yeah, I actually no, I get that. worked in schools when I was in Kenya, and they—they're talking about what's happening in America. They're talking about what's happening with the political system. I mean, they're—they're they're learning about America and the world in ways that we are not. And when I say we, I think it's important to know because I've done training in both inner-city public schools as well as in county schools, as well as in private or independent schools and parochial schools. And I find that when I go into private slash independent schools, when I go into parochial schools, when I spend time in some county schools, there is more conversations about what's happening around the world. I think that the mm -hmm. public education system has to be dismantled because it's our children who are suffering. There is a way that you can expand the mind to have multiple conversations, to learn multiple languages, but it has to start early on. I mean, it has to right, start no, when I our children are in first grade and we can't wait until they get in high school at ninth grade. And then we teach Spanish as if it's something separate from, from what their <laughs> daily understanding is. No, I, But I think that's part of the system here. Maybe these are the yeah. things that as we begin to rethink education, which I know we are doing that, that's one of the things. Where does arts and culture and language and an understanding of the entire world, where does it fit into? I would also say that Zillennials, I think in particular my sons, are, are more are much more plugged in to the rest of the mm -hmm. world than say I was and baby boomers were and even older millennials were or are because of social media. So so right. they're, they're content. Yeah, and it's native for them. It's made it much easier for them so they, they can have bigger, broader conversations where I would have a pen pile, a pen pal, and I would wait six months for a response. They're talking to people all around the world and it's made the world a lot smaller. And so they are more interested in what's happening in Egypt because they've connected with Egyptian activists. They're more connected right. with what's happening. So I think that social media and their their push into social media has made the world smaller, but it's also made their interests a lot broader than they used to be. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I, I want to come back to the education piece here in a minute because I agree about kind of not just, uh, you know, slightly making changes, but there needs to be kind of a dismantling of the existing uh, kind of structure. Before I get into that, I, I wanted to go back, though, to kind of media diet, the, the parts that we opt into. And, uh, you know, I'm, I would say, I guess, uh, complicit in this as well, you know, working in, uh, you know, the film and television and video game industry. And so uh, I call this out because people, you know, many Americans choose pretty extreme, you know, levels of media consumption, you know, depending on what source you look at, you know, for certain demos, it's five, six, seven hours a day, right? So there's this huge portion of our day that we're kind of consuming, not producing or learning. How do you think we we break that that level of consumption and help people kind of spend some of their own personal time in more productive ways? Or or do you do you say, hey, that's not a problem. There's other places in, in the 24 hours where we can help our, our society get better. Well, I teach communication and I teach advertising and we talk about the amount of time people consume media, whether it's being exposed to over 3000 ads a day. Uh, to the number of hours that they're watching TV and they're reading magazines and they're on social media. I, I no longer have a stand that I used to have. I used to have a stand that people need to monitor the amount of time that their children spend on social media. They need to monitor the amount of time that their children spend playing video games. 
uh, whether or not they're watching Hulu or Netflix or they're you know giving updates on, I don't know, Twitter or TikTok. I, I've moved away from all that. I no longer have a strong stance because of COVID-19. And what I have found that with COVID-19 and social media, it has worked to save people's lives. That hmm. being able to go online for hours at a time and watch cooking videos or post your own cooking videos or do a TikTok, TikTok with your grandparents or have your Zoom birthday parties or Zoom meetings or Zoom school, all of everything I stood for, that's no longer relevant in my opinion. I think we're gonna have to start a new study of social media coming out of COVID-19. I think the old media is no, the old ideas are no longer relevant because I think social media right. technology has invaded our lives, necessary evil. And we can't say, hey, your child should only be online a couple of hours because they're online all day with school. So mm -hmm. already they're online for five, six hours. So now we're saying you can be online for five, six hours, but not in school. Well, I'm a professor, I'm now online. I'm teaching online <laughs> all morning long. I have every single meeting online. I'm, on, I'm online with you now on a Sunday. Right. So my own media consumption has changed because now the only way I can see my parents is if I want to see them, I have to get on Zoom. I can no longer have any hard lines about how much media I consume because technology. Yeah, so it's like. Yeah, it's almost challenging that the, the format is not necessarily what we need to demonize, maybe how we're using it. And, um, you know, maybe it's a conversation around, uh, you know, values and other types of things. I know, you know, the way beauty is shown and, and promoted, uh, not just online, but in general, uh, maybe those are the types of things that we uh, we need to tackle uh, rather than simply saying, hey, this particular medium or format is, is good or bad. I don't know, because the idea of beauty and how it's been portrayed, we also have the pushback now, an active pushback that's been building over the years to show more body types, to show people who are expressing their own beauty in their own natural ways. I, I look at people who are selected as models, like there's no longer this kind of standard of blonde, blue eyed, pale skin beauty. Now it's people who have all kind of... of different skin types, mm -hmm. body, body forms are being supported. You have things that have used to be called disabilities. Now they're, they're benefits. I mean, I don't know. I think all of that has changed. And I think this kind of conversation we cannot have until COVID-19 is over. Until we figure out who we are, then we can figure out how do we stop the consumption of technology? Because right now people need technology in ways that say they didn't need last year at this time. Last year I was standing right. in judgment going, well, your child doesn't have to be online all day. Now I'm thinking, look, I want to get my parents online more because they're feeling disconnected. They're feeling lonely. I want boomers online more so they'll understand that they're part of a bigger community, which means I want them using more technology, which goes against everything I've been preaching the last 10 years. <laughs> right, right. Well, you have a growth mindset, so you're ready to kind of uh, flip it as, as the world's evolving. I want to go back to the education piece. So, you know, at a macro level, it's easy to talk about, you know, hey, let's go dismantle this thing. What, what you know, there's some some pragmatic things we have to think about to, to even start that conversation. From your view, vantage point, what do you believe are some of the things we need to start with if we're going to be serious on taking action there? It's interesting, and I appreciate this conversation, but this pandemic 
and I would call it a syndemic within the, the African-American community because right. we have multiple points of hostility and oppression coming toward us at one time. It's not just COVID-19. It's COVID-19 and the shooting of the brother in Philadelphia. It's COVID-19 and the fact that we have so many of the underlying conditions that there, that there are much bigger and broader issues that we have to deal with. And education is one of those areas where all the things that we have been complaining about, the inequities in education, have been laid bare during COVID-19. We always said the inner city children were being miseducated. We saw that with how quickly public, I mean, private and parochial and county schools moved to online learning and how difficult it was for any sort of schools. We know that our children who attend inner city schools are not just falling behind, but that we can't even measure how behind they are at this moment. We actually don't have any measurable outcomes because we don't know what it means. What does it mean that across the country, Private schools are actually back in session. Like they can test everyone. They can have all the young people back on campus. Uh, you know, and, and they're spending their days moving them forward while black, brown, and white children who are in economically challenged communities are falling behind. I think education as a whole is going to have to be revitalized, changed, rethunk, uh, reimagined coming out of COVID-19, because I think the first thing we're going to have to tackle is where are our children at this point? What are the tests that we're going to use to measure how much they've learned and how much they've lost? Are we simply moving everybody ahead at next year, even if they're not ready? Right. I think COVID-19 is causing us and will cause us to rethink everything. And education is one of the things we have to deal with because the question is, are our children prepared for the challenges of this world that they're going to be met with when they graduate? That's gotta be a problem when they've lost the spring. I would argue in some communities mm -hmm. they're losing the fall and there's a chance they're gonna lose next spring. So you're talking almost a year and a half of loss in educational progress that's going to be difficult to make up, particularly if parents are not home, standing over their child's shoulder, making sure that they're getting everything. If they can't do that, then children are kind of learning independently, getting it if they get it. I mean, they're on Zoom, but may or may not be connected in. So that's why I'm saying that, you know, there, there are people who are educational researchers. I work in education where in terms of I train teachers for critical race theory and culturally responsive teaching, but the educational researchers have got to look at this and figure out what we have lost, what have we gained, and how we can then take all of that information and translate it to what our students need at this moment. I don't know where to start. I do know I have come across parents who have third, fourth, and fifth graders, and they're telling me, I don't think my child is learning a thing. So if your third grade is not learning the essential skills, there'll be a fourth grader next year Will they continue to fall behind, particularly given the fact that it doesn't look like, at least within our community, that we're going to be quick to take a vaccine? So if we don't take a vaccine and one isn't developed until 2022, where does education stand? How long can your child fall behind before the process is not going to be able to be reversed? Right. And I mean, and to your point, it just keeps compounding. I do want to go back to something you you said about testing, and uh, you know you have a a PhD in, in as I understand culture, language, and literature. 
I'll put this next to something else. A lot of times when I have the conversation with people, both in my professional and personal circle, you know, there's a lot of conversation around STEM testing and uh, these things that are, even though the testing may still be uh, jaded or, or broken, attempting to measure things that are more quantitative. How do you think we should do a better job measuring how our children are learning subjects related to culture, language, and literature? So even though my work is in language, literacy, and culture, uh, I'm a historian by training. Mm -hmm. So I do Black history is what I focus in. So I don't deal with designing those kind of tests. What, what I deal with is learning about the historical impact of these testings and this framing on my community, that that's the work that I do. So right. when I think about trying to, to redesign the testing, it's about trying to figure out where we are attempting to go. What, what makes me concerned to just frame, you know, reframe the question a little bit, what makes me greatly concerned and what keeps me up at night is the fact that we're trying to learn all of this in real time. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not as if we can stop everything and we can spend some time really figuring it out and then we can roll out our results. We have to learn quickly. We have to implement quickly. We've got to make quick changes because it's impacting and affecting our children at this moment. So I got it. Yeah, no, and that's a that's a great perspective. As, as I think about, you know, you, you talk about in this moment, we got to get out of COVID, right? We got to get out of this pandemic, and uh, there's a ton of uncertainty on that timeline. What do you feel that uh, people, you know, in the communities that that you, know, you look after and, uh, and you're an expert around, what do you think people should be doing differently, um, if at all, in the meantime, right? While we're waiting. While we're waiting, I tell people that the main thing they need to work on is trying to stay healthy trying to make sure that their children are plugged into what is happening in terms of are they are they getting on and logging in for school are they connected with their teachers are they understanding how this is a global pandemic it's not just happening in america are they understanding what are some of the things that we need to do to take care of ourselves and our home? That helping our children understand that technology is there to be an assistant, an assistance for them while they're learning. So they could go on to Khan Academy. They can learn other languages. You can find a way to make the learning process more fun. Are you getting your children outside? That you can actually take this moment to do some kind of transformative teaching and and I say that, and I know that it's framed around class because it's easy to say, take your children outside, make sure technology is working, do Khan Academy, learn Spanish, and you know, have your child make their own food. That's assuming that there are measures in place to support the home. With what is happening with the lack of stimulus, another stimulus package, with where people stand with an eviction crisis, uh, the fact that uh, unemployment is rising and our community is being impacted, that people right now are just trying to stay alive. And I can respect that. That all these other things sound wonderful and transformative. I think people are just trying to stay alive and they're trying to keep a roof over their head. They're just trying to do the most basic things. Yeah, no, I get that. And I hear that. I, I want to I wanna tie that immediacy to uh, kind of where we're at today. You know, we're kind of wrapping up a, a historic election season. I wanted to hear from you. 
what do you, or you know, maybe maybe frame this as what would you demand? Uh, but what do you want most from uh, both your federal and lo- local government in 2021? Um, I think those are those are two different questions. I think sure. that what we have learned coming out of the civil rights movement, maybe the lessons from the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and the LGBTQIA movement, is that there are some issues that are federal issues, ending Jim Crow, making sure women are allowed to vote, protecting the voting rights of women, uh, talking about marriage and domestic partnerships. Those are nationwide issues. I think that there's city and statewide issues that people have to kind of separate. I'm not looking for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to make sure the lights are working on my block and to make sure right. that my schools are being transformed or to make sure that crime goes down in my neighborhood. No, I'm putting that pressure on my local elected officials. I think people have to recognize that under Barack Obama and presidents before him, I think that we were comfortable with leaving everything in the hands of our elected politicians. We vote for you as president and we expect you to come along and save us and do the work. And then I'll check back in in four years for the next presidency if somebody I like is running, right? And if not, I may not get out there. Donald Trump as a necessary evil has shown us that we need to be actively involved. We must keep our politicians' feet to the fire. We must force them to do what they promised to do and to stay as engaged as possible. And I think people got it. I think Donald Trump woke people up. That's why we have more women than ever being elected to the House and going into the Senate and being elected as mayor. We saw black women across the board from Stacey Abrams to Keisha Bottoms to Mira Bowser standing in their power. Like Donald Trump showed us that we cannot simply just elect people, show up only when we, when, only when it's the first black president being elected. We can't just show up then. We have to stay active and involved. I would argue that maybe, and I know I said this earlier, so I want to go back to it, that maybe our children weren't that connected with politics before. Under Donald Trump, I had seven-year-olds talking to me about Donald Trump and the presidency. (laughs) It transformed everything. It, mm-hmm. I know when I was coming through school, when we knew there was a president, we didn't know what the president was involved in on a regular basis. Under mm-hmm, Donald Trump, right. everybody from my grandmother to my six-year-old neighbor can talk about Trump and why Trump had to go. That's a level of political engagement that will transform this country and has. Absolutely. I do want to go back to that, to the local municipality level um, part of that, specific to the community you're in that you kind of, you know, you're on the pulse, right? We can't generalize and say these are the things that other cities may need, but but specific to the area area that you're in, what do you think, um, you know, the local government there needs to tackle um, as kind of their number one priority in 2021, um, you know, compounded with COVID? Uh, well, here in Baltimore City, um, I just spoke to our mayor-elect, Brandon Scott, this morning uh, when I was on the air. In addition to COVID-19 and our concerns around that, we need our mayor to talk about the rising crime levels. I mean, here in Baltimore City for the past five years, homicide numbers have always been a problem. And so that is something that needs to be dealt with. Uh, our mayor does not control the schools. We have an appointed school superintendent, so we will continue to keep her feet to the fire under that with the mayor and the city council, dealing with um, the food deserts that are in Baltimore City that need to be transformed, making sure that money gets allocated to neighborhoods that are financially struggling, thinking about 
uh, the ways in which they're going to restore the trust of the people in politicians. Remember that we had this issue in Baltimore City with our mayor, former mayor, Captain Pugh, who's now in jail. And so we've got to restore the trust in our elected officials. And, and Brandon Scott, who is a born and bred Baltimorean, raised here, attended the schools here. Like he has a, a special connection. He's very young and people know him, respect him, like him, and he'll be able to motivate people in a different way. And I think people have been waiting for a while to have some transformative leadership in this city. And I feel that under our new mayor that we have that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great to hear. I want to talk about your show. So uh, you host a, uh, a radio show called Today with Dr. K. What has been uh, the reason that's uh, uh, kind of a critical way for you to kind of share and amplify your voice? Well, it, it's a daily radio show where we talk about everything from Trump to Taiwan, politics to pros. There are only a few radio shows, drive time, afternoon radio shows hosted by Black women. It's an opportunity to have three generations in the car at one time. So I can speak to grandparents and the parents and the children all at one time that I can make sure. And as I have on my show, I have a lot of young listeners. Um, I know I've met my youngest listener. She's 18 months old. And I do, <laughs> uh, I do a weekly, not weekly, I do a monthly get together with my, my listeners who are 13 years of age and under. They're called my mm -hmm. Itty Fan Club. And before COVID, we used to get together at the bookstore once a month and I would read books to them. And I would have 50 to 60 children join me who listen to my show and just think that I have seven-year-olds who tell their parents, turn on Dr. K uh, because they love my show. And so now we're on Zoom. So once a month on Zoom, I get my itty bitty fan club together. We read books, we talk, we sing. We now have a French instructor who's teaching them French. So, I mean, the show gives me an opportunity to plug into the community and to be an instrument for change. And that's all I really want to do in Baltimore City is just be an instrument for change. I love it. As we're wrapping up for that audience and uh, I guess uh, kind of the world even more broadly, what's the, the um, as we're wrapping up this wild ride that is 2020, what's the both uh, advice and or inspiration that you would leave people with? Um, I dealt, every day we talked about the election on my show, I also write a, a monthly column for the Afro called Conversations with Dr. K. And so I have been talking about this election. I've been talking about white supremacy. I've been talking about the danger of Donald Trump for three years, uh, 10 months, eight days. So to have gotten to a point where that has happened is exciting to me. But it's also exciting to know that we can continue to use media for good that the show can be an organizing base. It was in January where I started telling my audience about COVID-19. And I decided with my producer in January that every single day we were gonna have a COVID moment, every single day. And I remember my listeners uh, actually complained early on. You keep talking about this thing, it's not a problem. Why are you mentioning it? Because I was telling my listeners, January, February, get supplies, get your hands out, get yourself locked in. Because I have, I have a South Korean exchange student who lived with us for five years, really my third son. But he, he's outside the country and he was over in South Korea and he told us in December, something is happening mm. need to get ready for. It. And so I took that onto the air. And I know afterwards when everything got shut down, so many of my listeners came onto our Facebook page and posted and said, thank you. They said, you got on my nerves, but you kept saying it. And so even though I didn't agree with you and I thought you were just you know 
reacting too harshly and you were being a little bit too concerned. I went out and I got my food and I got my, my gloves and I got my face mask. And when we finally shut down, people were ready because I've been saying it and saying it and saying it. And to me, that's a way of using media for good to be able to raise the alarm. I'm, I'm at WEAA, Morgan State University, so it's Black Talk Radio. Our radio station is where we go to get news. And I think my listeners know that if I'm wrong, I'll tell them wrong, that I'm wrong and that I do it because I love them. And whatever we can do to save the lives of the people in our community, I think that's what we're called to do. Fantastic. I love it. Well, Dr. K, thank you again for joining us today, sharing your story. I love that. That's the t-shirt, right? Media for good. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate having the opportunity to share some of my stories. It's how I see the world. You you made me sound a lot more interesting than I am. So thank you for that. (laughs) No, it's fantastic. Uh, Tell our listeners where they can find uh, either yourself or any of the things you want to promote online. Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at, at KWhitehead. That's K-A-Y-E Whitehead as it sounds. I have a, a heavy uh, social media perspective. People can also check me out on my Facebook page, which is Today with Dr. K, and that's W-I-T-H-D-R-K-A-Y-E. And I have a column for the Afro and it's Conversations with Dr. K. But they simply Google me, they'll find me. I tend to be very loud <laughs> on social media and to be as active as possible. Excellent. Thank you. And thanks everyone for joining us today with this conversation with Dr. K. Hope you've enjoyed your time. Please leave a great review wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.